Welcome back to Building Our Future. I'm Bert Broadhead, and today we're joined by Laura Moreri. We'll be talking about relationship between brands, consumers, and buildings. We'll explore Doug Stevens' belief that the store is now media, and discuss how digital transformation and the changing nature of brand identity is shaping the form of bricks and mortar retail. We'll discuss which concepts are embracing change most effectively, and what the future holds for independent stores. Brand isn't just about retail, though, and we'll discuss the growing phenomenon of brand in other sectors, such as co-working and co-living, before ending up with some thoughts about keeping relevant in an ever-changing, consumer-driven environment. Do get involved in the debate. You can email me via the website or find me on Twitter at building underscore R. My guest today is Lara Marrero, Studio Director and Retail Practice Leader at Gensler, a global architecture practice. Rather than specialising in a specific sector, Lara is interested in Zeitgeist and brand. With an education that spans psychology, advertising, marketing and cultural anthropology, Lara's focus is on translating complex global consumer trends into understandable, workable and profitable outcomes for her clients. As strategy director and a leader for Genza's retail practice, Lara informs the design process through her knowledge of business, brand, and consumer needs. She's focused on how users engage with brands, helping to deliver an experience that considers the role that brand, service, storytelling, experience, and environments all play in connecting customers and employees. These insights are applied to a variety of projects, including retail, workplace, hospitality, and entertainment experiences, and large-scale mixed-use developments. Wow. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So before we dive into the, the changing impact of brand on the built environment, can I start by asking how you came to this point in your career? That is a great question. I grew up in a place called Burke, Virginia. Um, it's about 20 miles away from Washington, D.C., where you have about 20 malls within 15 miles. And so as a child, I was always in retail environments. That's what we did. We hung out in retail. We were little mall rats. Um, and I started working in retail stores. I worked at The Gap. I worked at Abercrombie & Fitch. I've worked in f and I've worked across the board because that's what you did when you were a kid living in that area. And um, I started sitting around and I'd start predicting what people were doing. So somebody would walk over and I'd look at them and I'd say, all right, this person's going to walk into this store. They're going to go do this. They're going to go do that. And they're going to end up buying this. And it became a game I'd play with my friends. And then I went on to study at Boston University. And um, I really loved this idea of looking at data before data was a thing that we all looked at, but doing psychological experiments where you had to actually interview people and start to understand their behavior and develop question sets to really understand what the effect of information was or what the effect of the environment was on people. I chose a distinction project looking at sensory experiences. And so the way you could use all five senses to really influence behavior. And at the same time, study... In a retail context? Well, no, just in a context of university saying, I bet you you can influence people if you just change things that affected senses. I mean, that was just an inclination based on sitting in those malls all of those years. And then um, 
through that psychology degree, I met some of the people in the cultural anthropology department. They were like, oh, we want to be involved in this. And then I started doing those courses while also doing advertising and really looking at how to cater messaging and visuals and understanding media buys and, and demographics and of different areas and understanding where to target those spends. And um, I ended up not knowing what I wanted to do with all of that because, you know, when you start going divergent on things and there's not a real clear path for you, what do you do? So I started working um, at a dot-com. When I was in uni, I actually um, had interned at Gensler because my mother had worked at the firm forever. And uh, yeah, nepotism only gets you so far, though. <laughs> Don't judge. But yeah, and so I, I went off. I worked at a dot-com, um, and then I ended up not really digging that. And then had the opportunity to work at Architectural Record Magazine and really started looking at doing all the all of the trade shows that we did and all of these um, advertorials and really started looking at the built environment and just kept on thinking about this degree and everything that I had studied and figuring out, well, in the built environment, this obviously has an impact and had an opportunity to go to run marketing or to work in marketing in New York and then eventually run marketing within um, the LA office. And so I've been at Gensler for 16 years now, and I've changed my role probably seven times. Um, but that's what the firm's all about. It's that entrepreneurial spirit of allowing you to kind of pursue your own vision and your own passions. And I saw that I'd always work with the brand and retail teams. It just, un I understood it. And it was like, actually, they're, the client's sending us an RFP and they're saying they need this. But do they really know that? Is that the symptom or is that the problem? And I'd start digging in and all of a sudden I would do it on every project that would come in. And we realized, why, why are we doing this for the proposal when this actually has value that we're not tapping into. Are you then kind of setting the scene for the actual, the, the kind of architects within within Gensler to, to work to you, so helping to shape the, the brief? That's where it started. Right. <laughs> That's where it started is, you know, actually looking at the opportunity before it even walked through the door and or even when the proposal came in saying, but is this really the issue? And I'd start doing... Mm -hmm. You know, I'd go back on the day when Friendster was around before, or in MySpace, before it was even Facebook. I'd start trolling those and say, but if you read what these people are saying about these brands, that's not the problem that they're faced in, with. And we just started following that train of thought, and it started making an impact to our clients. And over time, I stopped doing the pitches for marketing and started working more on the projects and getting involved in the thinking behind the why. And the next thing you knew, after doing a lot of retail, then all of a sudden, mixed use thought they could use that thinking and, you know, retail centers and uh, workplace and resi. And all of a sudden, you realize that it's applied to everything. Which, yeah, I agree with. And clearly, clearly your experience suggests that. But a bit like you, uh, it may be easiest to start off in, in retail in discussing brands, just as it's probably the, the most common thing we can all relate to when we, when we think about kind of brand and, uh, and customer engagement. Is retail dying or just, just changing? We see this happen all the time. It's not that it's dying, it's evolving. It happened in the early knots. If you remember back when the dot-com boom started at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the knots, where everybody said, oh, you have all of these online brands now, it's going to kill brick and, bricks and mortar, and everybody was bracing themselves for the death of, of bricks and mortar retail. And then the next thing you know, no, 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 that's not at all what happened. The dot-com started to crash. All the bricks and mortars started getting stronger. Dot-com got stronger. The two coexisted for a really long time. The bigger issue is that what we understand retail to be is no longer the same definition. 
And that's what I would encourage everybody to kind of think differently about. It's no longer retail. It's brand, it's brand engagement. It's saying retail shops aren't necessarily the only way that a brand engages with their customer anymore, which is what it used to be. It's one of many opportunities and one of many settings. So you really need to look at it slightly differently and say, we're no longer in the business of retail. We're in the business of brand experiences. There's a guy who's been beating this drum for a long time. Do you know Doug Stevens? Yes, very much so. So for for listeners who are interested in a a little bit more exploration, so Doug Doug Stevens has a podcast uh, and an episode called The Store is Media, where he he talks to this exact point. And I was interested to see a quote from you in Property Week where you say, shops have gone from being places where transactions are made to places where a brand engages with the consumer, which is really kind of Doug's, Doug's point. And you posted an infographic on Twitter, which backs up this transition um, away from functional retail and, uh, and points out that 49% of people who shop have the intention of achieving a specific task and others may be, may be shopping for, for other reasons, just to have a look around or, or just yeah, spend time. Uh, so clearly our reasons for shopping are, are changing. If you think that less than 50% of shopping are actually doing it with the intention of buying an item, it's, it's crazy. It's already a, a massive move away from what we've always thought of as retail. Oh, yeah. And I'll take that. It's funny because there are two things there. The first, I totally agree with Doug's comment, but I actually take it a step further because I would say get back to the why. Like figure out why this stuff is happening. And and I I can't stand a solution that's not rooted on something that is going to result in something that you can measure. And what I started realizing just walking around, I mean, just, again, observational research, just walking around looking at people today, and you can even think about yourself when, when I'm talking you through this. It's that smartphone that we have in our hands has completely changed the way that we perceive experience, 100%. So it used to be all these cumbersome things that we'd have to do. If you needed a phone number, you needed to go to the yellow pages or white pages to go find the phone number, or you'd need to call, you know, in America it would be 411, or you'd call yeah. the information to find the phone number. Well, those things don't exist anymore or they don't, they're not needed as frequently anymore because you have it right in your hand everywhere you go, right? Right. I mean, it's amazing that they still do exist. Exactly. Yeah. And like, when was the last time you memorized somebody's telephone number, right? I can't even tell you what my direct landline is. Like, I have to look it up in my email signature. Sure. But that's the thing is we've become so dependent on these devices. But what we forget is that that device, when it's turned off, is like the spaces we used to design, so it's this beautiful thing that's got all of these bells and whistles in it to allow you to do stuff. But when it's turned off, it's just a beautiful thing. The real reality of what places are today are just like that phone. It's that moment you press the button or you face ID, and it becomes something that you're interacting with and engaging with. So our expectations that have been created from our smartphones on how you can customize every little setting, how you can ask Siri for something and it can instantly um, anticipate what your needs are in terms of your travel times and re- you know, be able to assess things through machine learning and, and AI, all of this stuff has now changed what our level of expectation is for how our time is being utilized. Can you give us a, a concrete example of, of how a, a brand may be using their, their kind of physical stores to really engage with us in conjunction with, with our phones and our, our digital content? Well, it, it, that's the thing. is It's not even that. It's saying our expectation for, right. for what we want 
in space is that time matters. So when you look at going into a store, what's happened is all of these people have thought, oh, we walk around with these phones, all these brands. We walk around with these phones. Well, obviously, that means people want to engage with technology in a space. But what you're actually finding is we're ripping out more technology than we're putting in in terms of user experience engagement. Right. Those are things that have a shelf life if the content's not regenerated. Just like our phones, if we just saw the same thing, if we went to Facebook every day or if we went to Instagram and that never refreshed, we wouldn't go back. And that's the thing is the way that we're experiencing technology, the way we're experiencing information is in technology, in our handhelds, in our computers. That's now dictating what our spaces need to do in terms of refresh rates, in terms of our ability to kind of have that end-to-end experience. So, you know, if you want to know a great example of a store that's using technology to its benefit and really thinking about the value of time through experience, Reformation is the first one that comes to mind. And I don't know if you know the brand. I don't know. I'll quickly describe it, but um, this is a women's wear company um, that has some stores. I know there's one in New York and that there's one in L.A. for a fact because I've been in both. But what they do, it's, it's actually quite clever. They have all of their product on the floor and you, just one of each product. And you walk in and there are sales associates standing there holding iPads and there's a counter um, that's kind of like a concierge desk. You walk in. You're like, okay, great. You go see a product, and then you say, may I try this on? And a sales associate will say, um, may I have your name and what size you'd like. And as you go through the store and you grab your items, they'll just kind of walk with you and take whatever you want and put everything right back on the, the, um, on the rail. So they have a profile of what you want. So when you go to the concierge desk, you just give them your name, and you say, hi, I'm Lara. I'd like to try on my items. Um, the concierge associate will say, yes, hold on one moment, and then say, okay, Laura, you can proceed to fitting room number four. And when you walk in, what's happening is you get in there, you open your wardrobe, and all of the products are there. And that wardrobe has doors in the front of it that you experience, but also in the back where the back of house is attached to the entire experience. And then in that room, you can manipulate the lighting. You can put your phone on so you can put your own music, whatever you want to listen to, podcasts, movies, whatever you want to listen to, music. And then you have um, a screen that says these are the items in your room. And so you can try things on. And instead of having that uncomfortable experience that many of us have, which is it's too big, it's too small, you're half-dressed, you need to pop your head out, say, hey, sales associate, can you help me? You just go to the screen, you press on the item and say, can I have a smaller size? Can I have a larger size? And then it just says, please close the wardrobe. You close the wardrobe and then they add the size in and then the light goes off that says you can open the wardrobe. And then all of a sudden the size is there. That does make sense. And I can see as if you are into shopping, a leisure shopper, that, that, would, uh, that would appeal. To me, that sounds like making an unpleasant experience even more painful. Really? Yeah, you've got to give your name. They're going to spell your name wrong. You've got to go through all of that. And I'm just, oh, I just want to try You never it. see it. You yeah, never see no. the name. Okay. But no, I get your point. I mean, I think what they're trying to do is say, make the conversion in the fitting room. So the whole point of that is saying, how do we use technology to make the conversion in the fitting room? My 2.0 of that experience would be, if I've done all my browsing online and I want to go in to try it all on, can I just take all of my record that you already have that exists and say, actually, I'd like to reserve a fitting room at this time. And then when I get there at the concierge desk, that can involve 
pulled all the clothes that I want to try on already and say, hi, I'm Laura. I'm here to try on these clothes. And then say, okay, hold on a moment. Okay, go to room five. So then you just take the step out. You know, Paco Underhill famously said that if you keep people in a store for 22 minutes, you can get conversion. You get a higher level of conversion. Well, how do you start to look at all of these different methods of retail and actually look at how you stitch them together with the red thread to go through the whole experience to make 22 minutes happen even when you're outside of the store? That's, to me, where I think the value of technology comes to play. I think I'm right in saying that there's there's the UK stats. I'm probably way out in here, but roughly... 18% of retail sales are done online, but closer to 50% of sales are influenced by online. Yep. Meaning that whatever, someone's seen it on, on the internet or on Instagram and latterly goes into the store to buy it. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's where having that experiential service within within the store really comes into its own. Because yep. once you pull the punter in, then you know that kind of golden golden service within the, within the bricks and mortar kind of seals the, seals the deal. Yep, and you got it. And I think just going back to the other part of the, the that you brought up about the Twitter post that you saw, Gensler really wanted to get to the core of understanding the why behind, like, does design have an impact on these experiences? And, and, you know, like, when you look at an experience, what is the role that design plays in it? And um, it, was, it was interesting. We embarked on this idea of saying, you know, how do, we, how do we look at the why? And what we found was that there were three different modes. You, you have what you've heard about a space and whether or not it meets that expectation, you have that engagement that happens in the space in terms of the service quality and the intention and everything like that. And then you have the space itself in terms of is it meeting those needs that you need in terms of really understanding it and is it the right kind of environment for what you see for the brand. But really at the core of all of it and what we found was it was all about the intention of the why, why the person was going to the space. And we identified that there were five different modes to experience. The one that you called out already was task mode which is, I know I want something. <laughs> I, I know exactly what it is I want. I'm going to go in. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get out, right? That's just getting things done, which is the exact experience you Me. just... That's, there that, it is. That, that's the 50% of the population, which is probably male. That's the generalization, <laughs> which is probably getting it shot for, but... No, um, no, no. Yeah. There's no... I have no guns. No <laughs> guns. Um, but it, it's a perception, right? So task mode. Then there's discovery mode, which is, I know I want a blue jumper, but... What blue jumper do I want? Yeah. What shade of blue? What, you know, and so now you're going in there to know that you want to get something, but it's figuring out what it is that you need. Then you have social mode, which is I'm meeting up with a whole bunch of friends, or I want to go spend some time with my partner. I want to go run around, and um, I'm going to use these, this opportunity to go have these experiences with this partner and socialize and have this be a new setting for that experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, then you have aspiration mode, which is this idea of, you know, I'm walking around this and I, I want to be a part of this community or I want to learn something. I want to better myself in some way. And then you have entertainment mode, which is I'm really just going in there to, you know, to be delighted, to be surprised, to kind of experience joy in a different way, um, to kind of feel that time mattered. Um, and in those five different modes and those headspaces, Within the retail, when you started just isolating for retail, um, we found the stat that, um, that you called out, which is 49% of the time people are in task mode. So, wow, that was telling. But the other thing we found was that any time you, got, you did t- 
any of the modes with another mode, there was a higher level of convergence. And so the second you're like, okay, so if you get task mode right and then you add another layer on top, that's where you get a much more enriching experience in the minds of people that are going into a space to do something in one of those modes. And so that's where the the aha moment came in. Because if 49% of people are in task mode, that means that 51% of the time, the other 51% want something more than just to get something that they know they want. And then when you start to talk, going back to the beginning of the conversation, is retail dying? It's being disrupted because task mode is the thing that's being disrupted. It's that idea of knowing what you already want or even discovery mode to a point where you're going online to see what's out there. But it's the task mode, is the Amazonification and the Alibabification of, of retail. It's about saying, hey, I can literally go up to my washing machine and push my Amazon Dash button and have Tide show up tomorrow or have, yeah. you know. And, and that's the thing is, for as long as that exists, that's now... That convenience element. Yeah. Is, yeah. It's about delivering better service. It's getting something to somebody and taking all of the potential friction points out of it. I get that. And I think that that is a compelling argument but then just coming back to your first point which is Mm -hmm. that shops having gone from places where transactions are made to places of experience and engagement Mm -hmm. aren't we still saying that they are going to be the focus of transactions and in in many ways it's it's you know you're still relying on digital media to draw people in but then often the transaction will take place in the bricks and mortar well what we're saying is that it's not just about transaction. Right. And the idea is if you think about it, do you want to go into a place that just has rails and rails and rails or racks and and shelves of product? Or do you want to go into a place where you can see what you want um and be able to have more air to breathe if you will in that space and see something more and feel delighted and feel like when you were there it wasn't difficult to find something yeah. or if you had that engagement with that brand, you'd feel more positive about supporting that brand. Yeah, and I, I think it's just, it's a question of degrees. Yes. So you have um, New Store, Cold Drops Yard, um, Samsung, they're not selling anything in this, whatever it is, 20,000 square foot mm-hmm. odd store. It's purely about Samsung experience. Um, I think Sonos have got something pretty similar in, in Seven Dials. So, so there is going to be this pure play element where stores become purely about media, brand, engagement, and, and no transactions. But, but that surely can only work for these kind of premium lifestyle brands. And on your average high street, that's just not going to make financial sense. So here's the best part of that, right? When you start to think of the very beginning, what I said... It's not just about retail, it's about brand engagement. It's the degrees in which the brand is trying to engage with its customer. That's not always going to be a sales experience. And more and more, you look at things like 29 Rooms, which has taken off in the States big time. Um, What what is it? Oh, it's like basically consider it an adult theme park, but not in the way that it sounds like an adult theme park. Let me try this again. (laughs) Um, Consider it a brand theme park. Right, So there are 29 rooms that different brands and different, um, and different social groups or different artists can sign up for. And it basically, the idea is you have this exhibition that people can take part in, and it's really designed for that social element, going in and being, you know, 
completely inspired. It's the selfie moment. It's the, I'm here for the FOMO because I am afraid of not being here, the fear of missing out. And I want everyone to know that I'm here. So I'm going to load up my Instagram story or my Snapchat with all of these photos of me in the same places that everybody else who's hashtag 29 rooms has been in. But you have companies like Juicy Couture. You have companies like toilet paper companies have taken over these rooms. And they're selling tickets. They're selling out. And they're just in big factory, like a big um, warehouses. And they sell out. And they just keep on. It was something that Refinery29 did, just thinking it would be a great experience. And it's taken off so big that it's, you know, celebrities show up to the launch of these. And everybody wants to be there. Similar to the Museum of Ice Cream. But even though that isn't brand endorsed, but it's just these moments, like the Converse One Star Hotel that happened earlier this year, where it's just for a couple, or no, for one night only, or for a couple days only, you go in and have a massive immersive experience where it might not sell a thing, but you go home and you want to be a part of that brand, you're buying something, you're going to Covent Garden to go to the store. You know, it's those types of things where it's about push and pull, yeah. where knowing that you're not going to have a million of them on every single high street, but if you really understand your catchment and you know where everybody is delivering all of their products when they buy them online, you can start to say, wow, we have a cluster of people, you know, that live in, you know, South Kent, or we have a cluster of people that live in Shoreditch. We should actually put an experience on for them and get them aligned to the brand and kind of make them feel like this is, this is their community. This is their space and cater to their demographic, psychographic, and profile needs. And then they will be engendered even more to that brand. And it, it, they didn't even need to buy anything. By them doing all the social yeah. media that they were doing, they've now generated loyalty in their entire community of people. If that is the case, that there is presumably a greater need than ever to um, place make, so to make sure that your, your task-focused retailers are, are trading alongside experiential-focused. You or get it. it so, so the challenge for the high street will then be this disjointed ownership and, and you know, um, yeah, curating the space as a whole rather than just cannibalizing one another for the sake of some extra run. I think the challenge for the high street is, again, kind of rethinking what that word retail means. You know, I think the challenge for the high street is people don't shop just in one place. Like, people aren't in one mode anymore. You know, when you think about the way that you work, live, and play, it's when was the last time you went to work and only did work and didn't take a personal call or didn't check something out for yourself online or, you know, buy something online? I mean, nobody nobody fragments their brain anymore by, I am in work mode, I only do work in work mode, I am in work mode. Okay, I'm out. Speak for yourself, Laura. I'm all about, all about business. Game face on. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's like, come on, I got to call you out on this. (laughs) No, but that's the thing is our lifestyles have changed over the past 20 years and the way that we spend our time. With the rise of of digital, digital media, et cetera, do you you think we're going to see increasing personalization? uh, And and clearly we've already talked about the experience issue, but will will that lend an advantage to independent new brands? Because they can offer genuine kind of authentic point of difference or is it just going to raise barriers to entry you can look at it twofold the brands that actually have built their infrastructure online all these online brands that have started shaping up um, you start to look at the fact that they have this seamless end-to-end experience in terms of 
delivering who they are online, what their content is, what their strategy is, and having a whole set, like whatever it is, their distribution center somewhere else. But they have that working. And then when they go to physical, they already have a platform where they have a CRM for their customers. They know who they are. They know what they purchase. They know all this information about them because their customer has been buying from them online. So the second you give them an in-store experience, now you're able to link all those things together and be able to leverage what you know about them and what their preferences are. All these physical retailers that came to online have had to tear down all these barriers to really compete against that because the other the online to physical is much more efficient because everything's streamlined. But everybody who was physical first is battling an uphill fight to be able to get efficient while changing their entire business, while investing massive amounts in infrastructure of their business. And there's a place for everyone, uh, fundamentally. And imagine these, these physical space companies that have been working in a way for a really long time with a lot of different divisions, with a mastery of being able to deliver to a client in a certain way, being disrupted by all these people that are able to say, no, we can push product out regularly, we can get it to people in two hours, we can do all of these things. So I have empathy for both sides because yep. now you know the online people are saying we have no physical voice. I mean, people can't really understand who we are because they've never really had that sensory experience. It's always just been a very digital, like transactional thing. So how do we actually give life to our spaces? And they they know so much about who they are that it makes it so much more difficult to get every little detail right and honed in and physical with the budgets that they're operating under. And then you've got physical who knows all that because they've been watching the data about mm. you know how their customers move and what they need and how they're shopping. But they can't get to a point where they can be seamless because it's a lot harder to work backwards with you know different divisions that aren't sharing information and um, and so there's empathy to both sides and and then while these online retailers coming offline are making these crazy experiences that are super amazing and it's all about just getting people to come in and get to know them because they yeah. already have that loyalty. These guys, are the other guys are competing, and how do I transform my business while now delivering on experience while also making sure that my infrastructure can get things to our customers in the most efficient and expedient way while also finding a new offering to make sure I'm not obsolete in five minutes? So there's a lot that people are contending with. Brand uh, is clearly a lot more complicated than I had appreciated in, in retail, but I think it's going to throw up some some really interesting opportunities. So one of my favorite people to follow on on Twitter, Anthony Slumbers, who's who's full of good ideas. He's a he's a big believer of uh, Seth Godin's concept of the tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I find interesting about that is is brand goes way beyond retail now. So we're now seeing it big time in uh, co working, co living, uh, and to to give people an example of what I'm talking about, um, you know, we work. They've just had a recent brand festival in in the uk where mm-hmm. you know several hundred thousand people turned up and actually a lot a lot of the, the kind of euphoria around uh, around we work is really a brand thing you want to be you want to be working there not just because it's convenient and and interesting space but because it's it's we work and it's got a, it's got a tribe about it. how is this kind of impacting on what people want from their working space and and how does the brand interaction kind of fit into how we're building offices. It's like you're in my head. I like it because this is the stuff that I'm constantly talking about. Ah. It goes back to that operating system. 
WeWork works because it's understanding the lifestyles of its people. It's understanding that these people that are going there are going there because they're either startup brands or they're a community of people that want to know another community of people. Um, and then they program ways for these people to interact seamlessly without that forced feeling of interaction. And I think that's the thing that's super interesting is that they're doing it in a way where they're looking at every single layer of the brands they're bringing in, how you look at the people that are there, you're programming the types of networking activities and culture into the space. But that's what retail brands do all the time. That We've always done it. I would argue that I think you know, it comes back to the brand you either you and the, the tribe so yep. you, you either you're in in which case you love it and you defend it or you're out in which case you look at it slightly skeptically so we work's a great example uh, is it seamless I don't know it seems a little bit forced to me at times when people are wearing shirts saying creator and stuff yeah. but you say that to um, a we work devotee and you know they'll they'll uh fight like, you don't get it you yeah, don't get right. it and it's you know apple five years ago you you either queued up for apple phones for or, or, or yeah, you loved Android or, or whatever it is. Um, it, it's quite kind of divisive. Uh, they're quite yeah. It's it's in versus out. I think we're going to see this more and more because as we got more digital, we kind of reverted. We we reverted to our social networks being something that were digital. So I mean, I think about the amount of times that I'm communicating, or I know all about my friends' kids, having never physically met my friends' kids. Like I can look at a photo of them as a baby and say, "Oh, I know whose kid that is." Yeah. And it's crazy. It's insane. And you f- you have this like weird sense of being a part of a community and still being in touch with people that you're not. And then you see them, and then it's just like, "Oh my god, how are you doing? Oh my god, I loved it when you posted that." And that's the thing is that it's still artificial, right? And so everybody hates the word authenticity, but I've got a lot of time for it. And the reason I have a lot of time for it is people, people misuse it. They think authenticity is anything that's real. But it's you subjective. Know? Exactly. But the idea that I look at with authenticity is this gut feeling I get when a brand says what it is and actually acts what it is. And so I can walk into a store or I can walk into a restaurant or I can walk into one of those entertainment experiences or I can go into any place and my spidey sense goes off when it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And I just know something about this, I don't like it. I don't like how it makes me feel. And but but regardless of how authentic you are, brand brands get old. Um, yeah. People get broader them. So how when you're thinking about designing buildings mm-hmm. and you're thinking about catering for brands, how how can you future proof the built environment against brand deterioration? Mm-hmm. Or you or are you ultimately always going to be is is your building's relevance always going to be determined by the occupying brand? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this slightly differently. I'm gonna answer your question. I promise. <laughs> okay. But brands don't have the luxury of getting tired anymore. I think it used to be, you know, you go back to 1918 when Henry Ford used to say, you can have any color of the car in the world that you want so long as the color's black, you know? Because it used to be that the brands would dictate what a customer could have. At a certain point in time over the past seven years, brands lost control. Customers have the control, because they need the customer to maintain their loyalty. Customers' demands have gotten a lot higher. They want much more personalization. They want much more individualization. They, if they give you information, they expect to get something in return for it. The expectations have gotten higher. There are 100 brands out there that are doing something similar to what you're doing, and if you're not doing it to their 
level of satisfaction, they'll peace out. They'll be gone in about five seconds. And that kind of power is crazy. And if a brand wants to maintain relevance to the community, the, the tribe, if you will, that it's growing for, then it has to constantly be looking at how that tribe is evolving, who's coming into it, who's coming out of it, and what's core, what's sacred. And that's not an easy thing. Uh, it's really not. I've seen brands, when Saks Fifth Avenue back in the day did their um, redesign, they alienated out their entire traditionalist base. And they were focused on millennials. And the traditionalists are the ones that had the money. They've been going there forever. And it caused massive backlash. And sure, at the end of the day, they were trying to hedge their bets. Yeah. But, you know, was that the way to do it? You know, is that how change should happen? I mean, we need to be a little bit empathetic of understanding that everybody's on a path. Everybody's on their own journey. And change happens based on the way that they have experienced technology, the way that, you know, the way they grew up, where they grew up. I mean, your mindset for change is so established early on that it's understanding how to bring people along with you and not leave them behind. I think the lucky thing for you is that um, it, it's pretty clear that as it stands, I think real estate is pretty underserved in how we think about uh, brand and how we really engage with what brands are trying to do. So uh, the future is presumably pretty busy, and it sounds like you've got an insanely busy um, schedule of, of speaking coming up and, and spreading the word. Um, in, in terms of people who've been listening who, who'd like to discuss things further, is, is there a way to get in touch with you? Sure, yeah. Um, you can go to gensler.com, and uh, I've, you can go to retail, or you can go to people, and you can find my name, or you can catch me at getlara on Instagram, Twitter, um, all of the social media channels, LinkedIn. Perfect. And uh, so we're on to our, our final two questions, which oh, here is we go. favorite building. Oh, I'm going to sound so cliche when I say it. Empire State Building. Haven't had it, haven't had it yet. Empire State Building. There's a, just, as, as is or you know, post-refurb? Or, no, uh, it's, there's just something about the charm to it. Um, I've just had... There's just something about the icon that it was for New York, that it is for New York, um, but there's something about how it owns what it is, and it's unapologetic about it, that I just love. I love just looking at it and, and just kind of remembering that it's been there for a long time, and when you go to it, you can still see all the cracks and creases, even through a refer, you can still see the age to it. And final question, which is... Uh... An innovation in real estate, which is which is kind of excites you about how it could change the way that we do things in the future. The equivalent of the Amazonification of retail, I'd mm. say, um, for real estate, is the appear here of retail or of real estate. Wow, you think it's going to be it's going to be that big? I think that temporary is the new permanent, mm. and I think it's about curating. Um, it's looking at it's looking at high streets and it's looking at places and curating the mix to match the types of people you're trying to get there. And it's being, understanding that people are, their attention spans a lot shorter than ever. And to really get them to want to be somewhere, you've got to give them a really good mix that they feel like they can identify with. And I feel like it's not just about every lease is going to be a short-term lease, but it's about how sprinkling that into a retail mix and sprinkling that into a real estate strategy could help drive traffic there um thank you very much oh, no, thank you really interesting oh you've been great thank you Thanks. if you 
you still thought that shops were all about sales, hopefully that conversation has gone some way in changing your ideas. What keeps real estate interesting is that there's never a one-size-fits-all solution, but it's clear that the industry needs to start thinking much more about how brands are engaging with consumers if retail-focused assets are to remain relevant. As brand appeal spreads to other asset classes, it's important to note that a brand may help drive value of your asset, but is there a risk that buildings may also become tainted by failing brands? I'll be putting this question to our next guest when we discuss the power of tech-enabled placemaking and community creation. Thank you for listening and join us here soon in Building Our Future.